Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Jamie Martin from Correct Careers Coaching. Jamie and I are going to be talking about things like how do you train someone with a fixed mindset? Should companies embrace digital selling? I mean, for a lot of us who've been working in tech for a while, you kind of expect it. But actually, if you look at the LinkedIn, the average SSI score is 26 for salespeople. And that's pretty poor because they're clearly missing out on a great opportunity. We're going to explore the uh, debate about do we go for AMs or BDMs, so account managers and business development managers. We're going to look at the full customer journey and why that's so critical, why account growth is so critical and how to generate it and how to do referrals well. So, Jamie, welcome. Hi, Marcus. Thanks for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. Excellent. Would you mind giving 60 seconds on your history, please? Yeah, so now it's been over 10 years, business to business, sales experience, anything from media, corporate, telemarketing. Uh, I've got a psychology degree, and I really like to use that within selling, especially in this current marketplace. But my background was really mostly in recruitment. So I did six years, a very successful career, recruited in over 20 different industry sectors, all up to C-suite individuals internationally. And in my recruitment role, really, you could find out about how important it is to build long-lasting relationships with clients. And I was doing a 360 role. So you you were constantly uh, doing outbound, you know, proactive cold calls, but it's really about long-lasting relationships. So I can mention a few case studies throughout about that. And then post-recruitment, I've been doing my own company now for two and a half years, looking at anything between the full sales cycle as well as social selling. Okay, very interesting. So let's start with the customer journey. Why is it so important to understand your customer's journey? Well, be frank about it. You don't want to waste anyone's time. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to work with a customer just for revenue, it could end up being a headache, a bad customer, as, as people will call it nowadays. So it's really important to work out who are your customers. Not only that, are they going to generate revenue? And you know, is it, is it going to be high ticket value items? Is it going to be long lasting revenue? Are you going to have a long relationship with them and work with all areas of the department? So you really got to go back to the very beginning, work out who your ideal customer profile is, your ICP, whether it's to do with company profile, like location or size or demographics or industry sector. Once you've identified that, then obviously you want to build a relationship with those types of clients. Because if you step, you don't want to reinvent the wheel here. If you stay in a certain sort of sector of clients, then you're going to generate more clients and focus on retaining them and nurturing them for the future, rather than sort of like being a bit sporadic in your approach and just bringing on any client just for some money. I mean, what's your thoughts on that, Marcus? Interestingly enough, I have some fairly strong views on this. So the customer doesn't care about you, your company, your products, your services. They, they care. Can you help me solve my problem? Can you help me achieve the outcome that I want? And they rent that solution from you for as long as it's relevant and uh, delivering what they need. Now, one of the challenges is that most salespeople pay no attention whatsoever to where the customer is. And you have to meet the customer where they are, not where you want them. And the predictable revenue model that so many, particularly tech companies, but many other companies have adopted, is really about creating a machine or a factory. They're trying to channel people through this process. And the sales process is purely selfish. 
am I going to hit my quota? Can I make, can I you know, t- take this mark for some cash? And I don't think salespeople necessarily think like that, but they behave like it. And if you're on the receiving end of 99.9% of the cold calls you receive, if you're the unfortunate recipient of yet another fucking awful email, or you have some irrelevant advert served up at you, and then it stalks you for another 450 cycles, all you're doing is brand damage. Because the, the price of all of that free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. Yeah. It, it can be a waste of time and money and resources if you can't identify who your clients are. I mean, a lot of salespeople will be horses with blinkers on. They will go in, they will get the sale because they've got to fill their quota or they, they want to hit their target and make an incentive. But are they asking the right questions? Are you really building relationships with the whole business? And then you can look at account growth and nurture them. This is really interesting. My pal, uh, Guy Rubin, set up a company called Ebster. And I really love what Ebster does. I mean, as a CRO, it's the kind of thing that you just lie awake at night dreaming of. And what they do is, I mean, it takes a couple of hours, literally, to do all the plugins. And then it sucks, uh, sucks into your CRM, your emails, and all of your comms. And it goes back three years to look at all the engagement with every individual from every one of your salespeople in every account. And it gives you a snapshot of the level of engagement throughout the revenue operation for every single opportunity. And then highlights seven areas on the basis of lack of engagement or the wrong type of engagement that you can now tighten up so that you can drive up the score and improve the probability of closing. And the beauty of this is you never, ever have to have another pipeline meeting where you have to listen to a bunch of people lying from their work of fixing, aka a forecast. And for every person in that room, that's one man minute lost listening to that shit. And the forecast is pinpoint accurate. The irony is they were asked by their clients, oh, well, you know, we need our salespeople to make a forecast. It's always way off. Whereas the data never lies. And it's not the CRM data that matters. It's the communication. It's the engagement. It's a relationship. So it's an interesting question there. You know, it's nice to have sales enablement tools and resources, but are companies putting too much of an emphasis on automation rather than also focusing on training the SDR or the BDM? Well, certainly in the world that I live in, most of the investment in sales enablement technology is to drive efficiency at the expense of effectiveness. They just double down on stupid in my experience, in most cases, because they try and increase the number of emails that they inflict on people. They want to double the dial rate. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. I want to know how are you going to help me get to my objective? And unless you can help me uh, work out what that pathway looks like, and this is why my pal Simon Byrne has a lovely model. He uses an iceberg as a metaphor, and he describes the top of the iceberg as selling shallow. So this is feature functionality price. And you cannot sell shallow and sell deep at the same time. So below the waterline, the first level is where you give them hope. And you co-develop a roadmap or a pathway to their better future. But the next level, and this is the promise that every salesperson selling any high-ticket, non-commoditized item needs to be able to find, in their messaging and their stories, is how do we deliver deep transformation? 
Right. Deep transformation that's positive, that they want without the unintended consequences. And that's where a lot of tech has gone wrong because they've been throwing this stuff in and they've been spending money. I remember seeing, um, speaking to one prospect last year. For 12 people, they were spending half a million dollars a year on their MarTech and sales, uh, sales stack. They produced $120 million worth of pipeline and those 12 salespeople closed less than two. <laughs> then speaks to your point about training. So let's just wrap up on the customer journey piece. I'm curious about this. In terms of the work that you do, how often are you looking at the upstream causes and seeing where those upstream causes cross one another to look for the solution to the downstream symptoms? Well, when I work with clients and a range of industries, the, the, the first thing to me is really important is looking at data of current, uh, current or historical clients they've got mm -hmm. and working out, looking at the business ecosystem to identify a target list of businesses based on the work they've already done. It, it, to me, it, it sounds simple, but you'd be surprised how many businesses haven't got that or don't understand the theory behind it. Yeah, so, spray and pray. Yeah, it, it's that spray and pray, quality versus quantity approach. But all you really need to do to help the listeners here is, say you're working in a specific industry sector, whether it's finance, looking at the customers you worked with. Okay, so who are their competitors? Who are their customers' customers? Who are the suppliers in, 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 in their chain? Those should be your target market next. And then you could break that down even further and looking at, okay, so was it a certain subsector within accountancy and finance? Was it a certain geographical location? Maybe you only work with American businesses. And well, also was it a certain size company? Those kind of ICP criteria are very useful. However, what I've also realized now is that there are psychographics that are going on in the background. If you understand them, what that allows you to do is to identify uh, if you're using the right tech, and so there's uh, one particular tech that I'm involved with called White Rabbit Intel. And what that does is it's a point and shoot AI that allows you, imagine you've got a massive haystack and in there, there are 200 needles, okay? okay? Doing it manually, which is what most people are doing, will take forever and you're probably going to miss a few. <laughs> if on the other hand, you have a really, really strong magnet you can just pull those needles out. And that's what the tech allows you to do. So you identify a population that you want to understand. And then you look for its shape. So they might be a spiky donut, for example, your ideal prospect. But a loyal customer who spends 30 times more might be a pyramid, mm. if, you, if you think of it. Okay. So how do you identify people who have the pyramid shape within your existing customer base, within your prospect base? within your supply chain, your joint ventures, your customers, customer, your alumni, your family well, tree. The shift in the sales market should be based on personality and, and values and interests. So there's a term called science-based selling, which looks at neuroscience and social psychology into the customer, understanding the customer. And I, I've heard of White Rabbit, and there's also a, um, a, an integration called Crystal Nose, which you can yep, integrate. Crystal Nose in. is fab. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So again, using this sort of uh, tech, uh, AI, to understand 
the likes and dislikes and the character and personality of your prospects. I mean, yes, it, it could be important to focus on the same industry sector. But to be honest, there's a famous quote by Tony Robbins, people who are like each other tend to like each other. And when I culture salespeople now, it's about building relationships with the individual. So the more you arm yourself with knowing about that person, which is why LinkedIn is br- bloody brilliant for doing a lot of research about your decision maker before you prospect them and using these types of um, AI and tech we spoke about, you can yeah. then turn a cold conversation into a warm conversation immediately on uh, the customer journey. And that's what's important for building relationships and conversion. Absolutely. Well, there's one other element which I came across a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I interviewed a guy called David Allison, who's the founder of a company called Value Graphics. And that was really very, very insightful because people's values are predictable and also will be critical in terms of determining purchase behavior. So you combine the demographics with the psychographics with the values, and you use the technology to arbitrage the time wasting, the donkey work. Do you know the average SDR spends three minutes per day actually speaking to another living, breathing human being in the ICP? No, it doesn't surprise me. <laughs> That's the average out of what you pay them for 480 minutes. Right. <laughs> you get three minutes of actual production per day on average. And this is based on 80 million cold calls a year. Okay, so it's a good statistical base. Wow. Um, now, when you think about that, that means 99.7% of their effort is wasted. So the way I'm looking at the, way, uh, the market, there, there, are, there are a handful of companies out there that are pioneering this. And what's really interesting is how they're working together and collaborating as a strategic alliance. So one of the companies I work with, uh, I'm chairman of, is a company called Sales Driven, and they're an outbound telemarketing company, ostensibly. But what's really interesting is how that business is evolving because of the technology, really strong recruitment, because most of your sales problems start in recruitment. It's about the staff, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what's really interesting is that you've got different types of technology, but most of the technology is focused on the salespeople to try and drive efficiency and to provide an audit function. CRM, 90% of them have been put in place to give an audit capability to senior management of finance, not to help salespeople sell. A tick box uh, exercise, basically. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. it's also, it's a tick box exercise. Now, if on the other hand, you really, really understand what's going on in their business. You you understand what it's like to be them. And you think as the customer. And every part of your process is built to deliver the customer a wow experience. And that every job has a window to the customer. What you're starting to see now with organizations like Sales Driven is that they are decoupling the traditional go-to-market model because they are combining all of the technology. What's really smart about this particular organization is whilst they built the traditional sales stack to help the salespeople sell, they're also building a management enablement stack. Mm. And that's the more important piece because if you can help your managers to release the creative and creative energies of your people, they then become capable of solving all of their problems themselves or, or with a little bit of help. They don't need you to do the work for them. And what I'm really interested to see is how these management enablement technologies 
like mobile practice, like Notion, which is a, a, a coaching at scale, operational coaching at scale business. You look at companies like uh, Connect and Sell. You know, t- technologies like that all working together to improve the capability of the business to survive what's coming. Now, that's really interesting. Certainly a sales force for the future, anyway. (laughs) Well, think about this. If they can deliver eight to 12 times more production, and you don't have to pay a salary, you don't have to pay for sickness, absenteeism, you don't have to manage them. All you got to do is pay a check and go on the meetings they book. Now what you do is you free up thousands of man hours, hundreds of thousands of man hours in a medium to large organization. When you consider how much time is lost in dialing dead numbers, not getting through voicemail, gatekeepers, wrong numbers, the person's died or left, yeah? Now that's a large chunk and you're paying for that. Why? Outsource it, arbitrage it. Absolutely. And I think that's why, you know, to finish off our conversation on the customer journey is is going back to the beginning, spending that initial time and investment, you know, working out who your target market is, rather than wasting all of this time you just explained, and manpower, and you know, staff hours to, you know, work it out. There's a really burning question I want you to answer, Marcus, is how can you... I feel like this is you interviewing me, but <laughs> only because I know uh, your experience uh, would certainly give light on the question. But I have this with quite a few of my clients, and I, uh, you know, educate it on it as well. But how do you know who is a bad client? That's a great question. Well, first of all, are they easy to do business with from the outset? If they're a pain in the ass now, they're going to be a pain in the ass later. Yeah. Second thing, I don't think there is anything. There is no such thing as a bad customer. You made a bad choice selling to them. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Yeah. So I put the onus back on the seller because we have to be responsible for making sure that we take on the right kind of customers because taking on the wrong customer has a series of unintended consequences, which then speaks to the wicked problem of sales. Because that is one of the uh, the catalysts for that. Because if you look at how often customers churn, that's indicative of you screwing up either when you sold to the wrong people or you failed to deliver the value that you promised them when you made the sale. Mm. Now, you see this a lot because they um, in SaaS and software as a service, Lots of these organizations have teams of salespeople churning out these orders, but then the churn rate is as high as 15, 20%. Now, a 15% churn rate means that you have to replace 49% of your customers every three years. That's insane. That's 49% of lost growth. Yeah, and the domino effect that has within the business and the culture is extreme. Absolutely. So again, meeting the customer where they are And making sure that you are fit for purpose is key. Then staying relevant is really important. Most vendors sell and run. They do a drive-by shooting and then they fuck off and then they uh, turn up again when it's time for renewal. Software as a service is a myth in most cases. All they've done is rebundle or repackage perpetual licensing. Mm. Because, I mean, if, if I have to pay a year or two years up front, that's not software as a service. I can't stop. 
yeah. unless you have terms that exactly. say you will refund me. <laughs> and that's the interesting uh, concept of looking at account managers versus business development managers or, or SDRs is that, you know, is it, especially with tech or certain types of, you know, SaaS selling, is that why there uh, is an emphasis on more BDM focus rather than nurturing accounts? Because you can still look at upselling, cross-selling, and other areas that you can, f- and, and retention is key. The good ones do, the bad ones don't. So if you look at what Salesforce did a few years ago, they realized their churn rate was going to kill them. Mm. So they fixed that. Then they spent a lot of time focusing on really developing their people. Massive amount of money spent on training. But it's the kind of organization, like so many, um, where they get, get, they just churn through. You know, hold my hands up. I'm not bl- saying this is just Salesforce. It's everyone. There's one organization I'm talking to at the moment. They're on their fifth methodology in six years. Right. The methodology is going to make bugger all difference. They're all good in, to some degree. Having a system is better than the classic uh, process, which is WeHap, winging it and hope and a prayer, which is the classic sales approach. So all these systems work. But if you don't reinforce, if you don't enable managers to free up their time so they can coach, they can go on ride along, that they coach what they see, if you don't equip them with the tools that they need, it's largely a masturbatory activity. You're just convincing yourself um, but you're not going to have any babies from it. You're, you're not going to generate value simply by creating more fires to put out and making yourself a supervisor and a doer of other people's work instead of being a leader, instead of being a strategist, instead of being a designer of systems and processes, instead of being a coach. This is interesting because when I was in my recruitment role, I was doing the actual recruitment consultant role as well as managing. And it was it was tough. It was really tough because having to manage my own clients, having to achieve my own targets and KPIs, as well as... uh, But let me ask you this. At the end of the quarter, if if, if the team was behind, did you focus on your selling or helping them sell more? Yeah, both will probably focus on... I was a more experienced person in the role, so I would obviously make more money. So therein... Before the branch, yeah. Exactly. So therein lies the problem Mm. because... How you incentivize people and how you measure them drives their behavior. One of the things that I'm really very interested in, anyone listening, please, if you know someone who has been able to develop a compensation scheme that does not drive the negative unintended consequences that we so often see, I really want to talk to them for uh, the podcast. Because I fundamentally believe that the compensation system is wrong in sales. And it answers your question about the BDM thing as well. We tend within the sales profession to pay for the front, we front load and we pay for new business, but you make more profit from selling to existing customers. Absolutely. And the beauty of working with the same customer for a long time is intimacy. Okay. Now, Charlie Green in his book, The the Trusted Advisor and the Trust Equation, uh, Trust Based Selling. He developed the trust equation. Trust equals reliability plus credibility plus intimacy over self-orientation. So the self-orientation for salespeople needs to be low, not completely low, so you're a doormat, but you're there to serve the customer. And selling, I define as facilitating buying. When I turn up, I'm trying to help them make a decision and facilitate the right decision, whether it's buying from me or buying from a competitor. And I regularly refer my competition. 
because they are better suited to helping than I am. Now, on top of that, we've got a compensation system. Because it's front-loaded, it encourages salespeople to sell to the wrong people, to sell to anyone. And because of the way you invest, that drives the behavior of the salespeople because they want to hit their quota and they want to keep the roof over their head. So they'll do anything they have to. But then you start to get this negative flywheel effect because as you take on more and more of the wrong customers, your operations start to struggle. And the strategy. And the strategy. And when you when you start falling behind there, then the higher-ups start panicking. So then they start doing stupid things like saying, Jamie, you need to take eight opportunities out of the next quarter's pipeline. Mm without ever thinking about what the actual tariff is on the team. On average, it's 33 to 46 dial attempts to get one effective, 14 effectives to get one first meeting, and only one in eight first meetings result in a second. So to get to a second meeting, you've got a tariff of three and a half to five and a half thousand dials. And you're now taking eight of those sales cycles out of my future pipeline. You can fuck off. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's my view. I'd walk. So I want to put another scenario here. As a high-performing individual who are achieving the revenue or the the revenue that is needed for the role, doesn't matter what role you're in, but they are not working the standard nine to five. They are not uh, doing the same KPIs as everybody else. Should they be penalized for that? Or they, they seem to be because they are not doing the standard best practices, but still achieving the revenue. Well, I think there's a better question, which is, what are they doing that our standard best practice people are not? And how do we get everyone else to do what they're doing? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, it could be the individual. It could be their mindset. It could be just the way they build relationships with people. Well, then you've probably hired wrong. And this all comes back to management enablement. If you don't train, teach managers and enable them to make good decisions, to hire predictably, because most people hire on the basis of skills, experience, and historical results. Yeah. Yeah? Well, all of those are lagging indicators. They don't tell me whether Jamie's going to be successful in the role that I'm hiring him for. Mm. Things that do are things like what you do every day without having to have a boot on your neck, your habits. What are your values? What are your beliefs? What's, what what motivates you? Yeah. What's your self-concept like? How, how do you perceive sales? Do you turn up and be ashamed because you're a seller? Or are you proud of it? What's your money concept like? Do you consider £5,000 to be a lot of money or half a million to be a lot of money or £500 million to be a lot of money? Because that will determine your ability to have a conversation about money. And most of the stuff, I, you know, I mentioned you know, the, the fifth methodology in six years. That's got fuck all to do with the methodology. It's got everything to do with understanding people. It's got everything to do with understanding that your managers are focused on the wrong end of the problem consistently. We've known this. This this is probably a historical thing that's churned over time and time again in certain Mm -hmm. corporate companies. I've seen it. I know my friends have seen it. So why is there not a shift in this model from the top-down approach? It's the magnetic allure of the status quo. Corporate visions have done some really, really interesting research with Stanford. And they identified that 10.4% of all buying cycles end up in an RFP on average. And this is with it was 300 separate 
CR, full CRM systems they got this from. And so 10.4% go to RFP. 60% go to the status quo. Do nothing. Right. That's 70.4%. That leaves 20.6% left. And those go to the organizer or the salesperson who showed up, disrupted their current preferences or destabilized their current preferences, helped them build a rational business case internally and sell it, created enough white space or distance between them and all the other solutions, including the status quo, and allayed their fears about anticipated regret and blame, buyer's remorse. Now, that's a third, less than a third of the actual sales cycles that go live where salespeople are engaged, end up in that situation. The rest end up in an RFP where you have an average of a one in four win rate at final stage. Yeah. So that's a 2.6% win rate if you're an RFP business for all the cycles you started. That's ineffective. You might get the number, but you have to hire more people than you actually need, probably by a factor of 25 times. Now think about what you could do with 25 salaries. Yeah. And there's a, there's a statistic which is shocking. Um, 22% of individuals leave within the first 45 days yeah. of employment, a new hire. From it's tiny terrible. And so you're thinking, if you do hire the wrong person or the onboarding isn't correct, the engagement isn't right, the sales enablement doesn't suit the role and you're basically set up to fail, then of course people are going to move on to another role, especially in selling. So it then causes us to look back. My epiphany in the last two years is, well, I've had two. If I have a problem, the first question I ask is, who has already solved it? Saves me vast amounts of time. And then I get them onto the podcast and, and they then help me solve my problem. <laughs> or I make the, you know, we, we uh, enter into a strategic alliance. And, and your second epiphany. And my second epiphany, sorry. Yeah, my second epiphany is always look upstream. Yeah. Go right upstream, but a long way. Because if I can find those moments in the buyer's journey where they face peril, that tells me where I need to show up to be the guide, where I need to be there to help them. So that tells me the touch points along their journey where I need to apply my marketing and I need to apply my salespeople. And I need to apply my senior executives to be there when necessary. And if I can find those upstream causes, I have to apply very little pressure for the flywheel effect to eventually mean that I have massive talk at the, uh, further down the line. And what I can start doing is creating a positive culture where the unintended con consequences are eliminated. And what we end up with is happy, delighted customers who come back year after year and bring their wealthy friends, paying us a premium, mm. and then continue to buy more because we're relevant. And this is where I think salespeople really need to up their game. We were going to talk about referrals, but I think it's, um, it goes deeper than that in terms of a, an infinite mindset. When we were doing the preamble, we were talking about how do you train someone with a fixed mindset? Well, a fixed mindset is a finite game player. They believe that the game has a beginning and an end. Someone has to win and someone has to lose. Yeah? And they play to win or they play not to lose. Yeah. Now, if you are the buyer, 
and you have a seller who is playing to win, not help you win, but for them to win, how do you feel? It's not about, it's all about them. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you, we, we buy based 90% probably on emotions. And at that point, you probably wouldn't want to work with them because okay. you're feeling there's, there's no trust or value there for you. Precisely. Coming back to the trust equation, frequency of touch, timeliness, relevance, value, and your network. Because even if you don't have something to sell them today, I put money on it that someone in your network is absolutely positioned to help them solve one of their pressing problems today. And I believe that the best sellers are the ones not only who can deliver great solutions, but they're the ones who also understand that their network is an ecosystem, a marketplace, and they can, without any friction, pull through trusted strategic alliance partners to solve the problems that the customer has. And our job, I believe, is to be a source of innovation pipeline, a talent scout for them. Yeah. I mean, and you'll be surprised, actually, how, I mean, I've been working with businesses recently who don't have some sort of referral reward or referral process. I mean, to help culture the the salespeople to make that a priority on every single conversation or any correspondence they have with a potential customer or, or prospect. Because if they're not talking about not only internal referrals between other divisions, but actually building relationships between other businesses they know. I mean, now and now more as I develop my business, I'm understanding the, the power of referrals and that even if it doesn't happen straight away, it's the relationship you build with certain businesses selling warm into your latent markets to continue the business ecosystem. And you've touched on the really critical factor there, which is patience. Mm. If you are under pressure and your hair is on fine, you've got to hit this quota and blah, 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 blah. You're not going to be patient. You're not going to think. You're not going to reflect. You're not going to pause and you're not going to step back and say, you know, how can we make this better? What can we do to serve the customers more effectively? Instead, it's how do I keep my job? It comes back to the recruitment thing. Because they can't recruit predictably because they don't know how to, ignorance, and then they can recruit three or five at a time, hoping one might work out. Now, <laughs> look at the turnover rate within sales teams. That's outrageous. And it's very, very expensive. Mm. And then you've got to you've got to pay for the recruitment, whether you use recruiters or not. Managers are spending time. Your HR is spending time, whatever. Then you onboard them. You've got to provision them with the technology. You've got to pay for licenses. You've got to pay tax and national insurance. You've got to pay them salaries. You've got to train them. And then you blame them because you made a bad hire. Sorry, that's on you. Sam Walton would fly a manager of a store all the way over to their head office in Arkansas, I think it is, which is not necessarily where most people would want to go to. And they would fly and they'd have to sit outside the headmaster's office to explain why any one of their staff left within six months of hiring them. Really? You only did that once. (laughs) Yeah? Because the onus is on us as sellers to sell well. The onus is on us as managers to hire well and develop our people. Now, what's really interesting is where you reinforce the training with only one hour of coaching Per salesperson per month, the increase in return on investment is 46-fold on the training. Yeah. 
So where I think most organizations are misguided is they focus on training the salespeople instead of developing and enabling the managers. So I used to headhunt at C-level positions, and mostly I was using LinkedIn to do this. And I just wanted to throw this in there to see your thoughts, because we're talking about top-down approach on, on being leaders and uh, hiring the right people. When I, when I was contacting some CEOs, um, CTOs, et cetera, or you know, director-level positions, when I was looking to recruit for their businesses, a lot of the time they would say, we're not hiring right now, but I'm looking to leave myself. Surprisingly, I would get that quite a lot of the time. No, no, so if, that happened to me all the time, 50, 10 years in recruitment. Same so it doesn't give you confidence in if you're the one of the top leaders of the business looking to leave, surely there should be... Well, okay, again, it depends. Have they been in post for six months? Have they been in for 17 years mm. uh, or somewhere in between? It, it depends on their circumstance. But yes, it's a red flag. That's definitely a red flag. Again, if you look at the turnover and the burnout within the management and leadership levels, that's really quite frightening. You know, what's the average tenure of a sales manager nowadays? 12, 18 months, something like that? Right. Yeah, I mean, minimum. CROs average is 12 months. Right. I mean, it's, it's such a shocking statistic that there needs to be serious meetings to rectify this issue <laughs> and this turnover. <laughs> Because you lose, you don't, you lose one of the most experienced people in the business. You lose all their relationships, who are probably going to take it with them in the future anyway. So and you the knowledge the goes with them, and the knowledge and the historical data, yeah, everything. Because not everything's recorded. It's catastrophic. I mean, but the, the problem is, what that does, it creates a slow bloodletting, and you start to get this um, sequence of uh, parallel wicked problems that are all occurring, uh, or sim- wicked symptoms that are all occurring concurrently. And that starts to create amygdala hijack in management and leadership. So they panic and they panic by tech or they buy in training or they fire the manager and replace them or they hire an entire cohort of new salespeople without ever asking, well, what's causing this? And there is a book that all of you, if you've listened to podcasts, I've recommended probably a hundred times now, but it's a must read. If you're in leadership, it's called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. It is a fantastic book. And at the end of every chapter, there's a flurry of about 20 questions that will make you wriggle and squirm. (laughs) Read it, ask the questions, and then respond and apply uh, what you learn from that. And your business will become a turnkey operation because it starts with leadership. It starts with leadership and management. If your managers are equipped for the future, I mean, my favorite question of the moment is, what are you doing to enable your managers for what's to come. And let that sink in. Because your average manager, when people come to them with a question or a problem, answers the question or solves the problem. Mm. What if instead they just stopped and they thought, is this a coachable moment? And they asked a generative, challenging, insightful question that would help the individual to at least move towards working on a solution of their own Mm. and ideally solve it for themselves. And there's maybe a sequence of five or six questions that help them get to that point themselves. On average, managers get 16 to 20 of those moments a day. Right. And on average, they do zero or next to zero coaching. Now, let's say even half of them. So 16 to 20, 18, so that's nine interventions a day. 
where you could empower someone in your team to solve their own problem. Yeah? That releases this creative energy within the group, within the team. Mm. People feel empowered. Mm. That increases engagement, which increases discretionary effort. And when you look at the profitability of those sorts of organizations that have highly engaged employees, they are nearly 400 times, uh, 400% more profitable, 40% lower absenteeism and sickness. Share price, compound growth, 316% higher than those companies with mildly engaged, disengaged, or actively disengaged staff in the main. Yeah. I mean, you talk about engagement. There was a study I was looking at by Aon in 2022 that 57% of businesses don't actually have any engagement strategies. So no wonder why that there's not the whole conversation we've gone through that if we're not supporting the staff, they're not engaged, they don't know their purpose, they don't know their why, they don't know personally what motivates them or what their succession plan is or what they're being earmarked for the future is, then they are going to get concerned and unstable. You've touched on something that's really important. How rare is it for a hiring manager to investigate what job they want next? Let's assume you're successful. We hire you, you're successful in the role. It's 18 to 36 months down the road. What's the next job? Where, where do you want to take your career? Mm. Because I see my role as a manager there. How do I help them? How do I help them get there? Mm. On day one, I want to work out a plan that will equip them to take on that next role. You know, the average manager gets tapped on the shoulder and told, Jamie, we've just fired your boss. You're now the idiot manager. Over to you. And that's your runway. I want a 12 to 24-month runway for my uh, future managers. I want them learning how to coach from day one. Mm. I want them, you know, the last one in mentors the next one because they're closest to the onboarding process. They can give us actual feedback and tell the warts and all story. They can work around the things that don't work and then help us improve the process. But you need to be vulnerable as a manager to do that. You need to be willing to let your people grow and go. And actually not selfish, because obviously if you've got the top performers on your team, you've got to want to keep them. But you've actually got to focus on them and their career paths. A a client of mine who's become a really good friend has just resigned. He's the top salesperson in his business. And he resigned without going to another job. And the reason is he just didn't like the way the company was going. And he told his manager and the manager said to him, you know, over the years, I've had that thought many times, but I've never had the nerve. As an average performing manager, my pal is top performer. I mean, he's way over target. And for a year, they kept giving him a hard time because he wasn't writing more proposals because the investors were using proposals as a metric to to value the business. Number of proposals out the door. But he had a 95% close rate. He was, at the time when we were talking about this, he was 240% of quota. The average was 40%. And he was being given grief over the number of proposals. Again, hence my point earlier about if there's a high performer, but they're not adhering to certain standard practices, KPIs, do that, why, why should they be penalized for it? Well, he's a third of this manager's quota. Mm. And his team is about 70, 80% of it. Now, there's a problem here because this manager's got several teams. So all the onus and the pressure then comes on the successful teams. And those are the people you drive out of your business. Because if you keep seeing people tolerate non-performance or favoring or pun- favoring people who aren't performing or producing 
or the individuals who are producing not being recognized for it. And I've seen that happen. Then I remember Mike Weinberg in um, uh, one of his books, he talks about a company absolutely smashing their number and the CEO getting up and thanking everybody, but not the salespeople. (laughs) If you don't value your salespeople and you treat them like pond scum, of course they're going to go. You've got to really rethink. It's the same recognition issue with that. Does the manager of a successful sales team get the recognition more than some of the individual top performers? Again, well, they have to give the recognition. That's the and that's the key. To be a really successful, trusted manager, your self orientation has to be low. Because and uh, to coming back to that piece around intimacy, great managers know lots and lots and lots about you. They know who you are inside. You know, they they know the essence of you. They know what you're trying to achieve. They know your motivations. They they they've known that from day one because they bothered to ask. The number of times I've been into organizations and I'd say, you know, early question. So, Jamie, talk to me about the personal motivations of your team. When you sat down with them to find out what they were, what do they tell you? Well, I've not had that conversation. They're motivated by money. No, they're not. They're clearly not because if they were, they'd be making some. You just got to wonder. I mean, as a species, we don't seem to be able to let go. And I'm, I really want to understand this as a psychologist. Help me understand the magnetic allure of um, what's familiar. It's the uncertainty factor. You know, it, what's worked before, people tend to stick with that process or that system because there has been results. Whereas people are concerned about reshaping, remodeling, or trying something completely different because it's, we, there's, there's, we don't know what the expectations are going to be. So it's the, yes, you are right, it's the familiarity. But those who do take those risks, when you look at the you know big entrepreneurs out there, Richard Branson, who's failed a million times and then be successful, if you go, go and take these risks, you will never be able to change the, the same thought. And, and that's the other point. The most successful people I've ever known lean into their problems. Everyone else leans out. And this is a really important part. You need to embrace problems and ask yourself, what if? Mm, The what if question, yeah. Yeah, and that isn't happening. And I think part of the problem is that we need to look further upstream. And I think it has to start at school. We really have to start teaching our future generations or current generations how to listen. Mm. Not just how to be there and wait for a gap, so that they can fill the, uh, the, ga- the silence with the sound of their own voice. But to really listen empathically, surgically, to get to the root cause, the essence of what someone is trying to convey. Because very often they won't tell you the tr- um, what they really mean. You have to coax it out of them. Yeah. And, and if you understand what drives them, what their fears are, then you've got something to work with. But the, the, the allure of what feels familiar without ever questioning, is it still fit for purpose? Because the business model that exists now is probably 40 years old, maybe, a, and some of it goes back even further. You know, a lot of the stuff that people are still teaching today was out of date when Queen Victoria was a kid. <laughs> now, if we think about the future, teaching people how to listen, is key, teaching people how to ask meaningful, compelling questions Mm. that someone feels driven to answer. 
because it sparks their imagination. Patience. But we're in a culture that is really driven by speed and uh, haste rather than speed. Like a rat race. Yeah, and they're not focused on the right end of the problem. I'm going to add to those uh, attributes and network. Absolutely learn how to network when you're young. And LinkedIn, I've been talking to some schools about doing workshops for them on LinkedIn already because that is an area that really should be cultured in at an earlier age. Yeah, and again... Another area that is really interesting, but many, many managers don't do this, is they don't manage inclusively. They manage uh, with a command and control mindset. Mm. If you want control, give it up. Enable your people through coaching and some training and reinforcement to become interdependent. Independent, then interdependent, and to buddy up. One of the things that works beautifully in my organizations is buddy systems. How do we get people to, on a daily basis, hold one another to account? And then every Friday, each of them has a role play. So they get to practice. And then they get to feed it back to the rest of the team. They capture the lessons. We don't do not do pipeline reviews. I've just uh, taken on a CRO role, and we're now stopping doing team pipeline reviews. I'm going to do it one-on-one. because I, I mean, we don't do volume. We're expensive. There's not a lot there. I can do that three minutes a day with each of the salespeople. And maybe a 15-minute coaching session here or there to uh, check out what's going on in the pipeline and move stuff along. But by and large, I don't want my salespeople wrapped up in a meeting where they should be earning £4,000 a day. And I've got eight of them in a room for an hour. So I've just spent four grand on listening to people live from a forecast. (laughs) And Team meetings should be a learning exercise every time. A meeting should be fun. If you haven't read Patrick Lencioni's book, Death by Meeting, read it. Mm-hmm. A meeting should be more exciting than the next Bond movie. <laughs> Don't know about that, Marcus. <laughs> oh, well, mine are. Uh, after what happened at the end of the last Bond movie. But yeah. anyway, buddy system, why not do that more within business and have a joint commission? So if you both achieve the, um, the quota, you work together, you're accountable, you achieve together a set commission. How exciting would that be with a business? Well, you, uh, you've touched on um, my hobby horse here, which I alluded to earlier before I uh, went down a, a rabbit hole. <laughs> um, I, most compensation is front-loaded. I believe that we should backload it with a little bit for getting the new, uh, the new business, the new logo. But the stuff I'm really interested in working out how to find the right balance is when the customer achieves the outcome they intended when they invested in our solution, that's when everyone gets a great big payout and the team gets paid out on that, not just the individual. If you're in the SaaS business, you're in the business of consumption. So why not have a consumption target? When they hit 80% consumption and 80% adoption, you get another big payout. Mm. And my favorite one of all is the third renewal. When they renew on the third year, you know you've done a decent job. First renewal, they probably forgot. Second renewal, your CS people will be phoning up and saying, oh, uh, see, the, it's time for renewal. And they'll look and they'll say, fucking hell, that's been gathering a lot of dust. Cancel. <laughs> yeah? And everything, I think, should be built through or the revenue operations should be run by the customer service team. Everything should start and end with the customer. And we should break down the silos between all of the different revenue operations of marketing, lead gen and SDRs, sales, account growth, customer success. There should be a seamless process and that's what the technology should be delivering. 
So when you pass the, uh, a customer along, it's not friction. There's no friction. There's no bump. It just feels seamless, and they feel safe all the way, and they don't have to start again with the security questions. And uh, <laughs> again, efficiency over effectiveness. Okay, Jamie, we've come to time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for interviewing me. I really appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so tell me this. You've got a golden ticket. You can go back and advise the idiot Jamie, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him? You know he'd have ignored. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, start my own business earlier, but I'm not going to say that because that's what generally people say. What I am going to say is record information as much as you possibly can throughout your life because you will be surprised how much you wish you would have recorded something or saved information or saved documents or whatever it may be that does actually come back around again in the future. We've got and journaling. I don't journal. journal. I blog instead because whenever I have a problem or an idea, I blog it. That helps me to reinforce it, but share it. When I've worked with people um, historically and they journal, those who don't journal will typically get about a 30% increase in their sales, which isn't bad. Yeah. Uh, the ones who journal got 300 to 1,200%. Speak to For 10 problem. to 15 minutes a day, I promise you it's worth it. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, so that would be it. Okay, fabulous. Tell me this then. What was your best mistake as a manager? Best mistake as a manager? Probably... Me still doing the high volume of billing I was within in the team. You know, the best mistake being uh, the recruitment role I was doing was because obviously there needed to be more more of my time on coaching the team and spending time with them. However, if I wasn't actually doing the role, then that is a form of coaching as well. So it had a double-edged sword there, Marcus, I'm going to say. Well, what know. do you mean if you weren't doing the role? Uh, if I wasn't doing the actual recruiting myself, as in, yeah. you know, Okay. Looking for the prospects, filling the candidates, which takes an abundance of time. Yeah. And I would have had more time. But we needed to hit a certain amount of targets and quotas and revenue. Mm. And actually, if I'm doing it, they're seeing me doing it. So the best way they can learn is by seeing it as well. So it was a double-edged sword with that mm. scenario. I'm going to challenge you on that because I fundamentally believe that player managers never really work out well. You, you, you're, you, you can't be half pregnant. You've got to be one or the other. You know, there's an old Confucian proverb. Man who sit on fence end up with very sore crutch. And I, I, th I think you're either a manager or you're a producer. And the challenge there is that when the shit hits the fan and you've got to get a number in, you're going to drop the coaching and the managing piece and you're going to get into the doing piece mm. and the supervisory bit. That really is a recipe for long-term success. So my, my, my one take out on that is don't do player manager roles. I, I reckon, I, I understand that sometimes you have to. Mm. I recognize that. But as soon as you can, that's it and become a manager um, or be a producer. Don't try and be a hybrid. I'm going to recommend a book based on what you've, we've said throughout this uh, podcast episode is uh, Christopher Maxwell, Lead Like a Guide. It is a really good book manager versus leadership type of book. Uh, he is talking about mountaineering and how he applies that into the business world to be a leader. So, Very interesting. Okay, that's on the list. Okie dokie. So how can people get hold of you? Yeah, anyone can give me a call. I'll give my number out. So it's 075-99-33-2178. Do you want to say that slower? <laughs> yeah, sorry. 075-99-33-2178. Excellent. And what sort of clients are you looking for at the moment? SMEs who um, have 
basically need a turnaround in their business, i.e. focusing now on digital selling and digital technology to and sales enablement, or more corporate businesses and global businesses. That's that's what I'd be looking for. Excellent. Jamie Martin, thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who could benefit from it. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.